Welcome to our session, which is on about how to be a freelancer. Um, we're really proud to um, sponsor this event. BAFTA Guru is a fantastic um, sort of set of events over three days. And Searchlight, who I work for, um, who recruit for film and TV, feel it's really, really important that we should be supporting the next generation. And we've noticed a massive change over the last few years in terms of the type of roles we get, on, get in. I'll tell you a bit more about that later. But so much of it now is from a digital perspective. And, you know, I always think of you lot, the under, I don't know, 25s, under 30s, as being the digital gurus, the, the, the digital natives. And therefore, we should be supporting you. And events like this, where you can actually learn from people who've been there, the professionals, um, it's something really valuable. And, I, you know, I know you're all sort of taking as much advantage as possible of it. So I just thought, before I introduce Sarah, I just thought I'd tell you a little bit more about Searchlight. Um, we recruit for film and TV right across the board, um, usually people with two to three years' experience and upwards rather than complete entry level. Um, but I think what's important is that we recruit right across the board, and it's very easy to think of roles in the film and TV industry as you know, producer, director, editor, costume, makeup, you know, those type of traditional roles. Whereas sometimes you, you just don't know, I mean, I certainly didn't when I left school, that, you know, what about going to Cannes twice a year and selling TV programs to international broadcasters and to digital platforms? Or how about being the PR manager for Game of Thrones? Um, or deciding what's going to be on Netflix on a daily basis? You know, those are all roles which are right in the middle of the film and TV industry, but Unless you know about them, you, you know, you, you're just not going to be aware that they're, they're, they're positions you could go into. I mean, when I, you know, I left school, I wanted to be an actress. Okay, fine. Um, I ended up being a film editor and working on 35mm and 16mm all those years ago. Then I moved into post-production at the BBC, and then I moved into commissioning and negotiating the budgets. But when I left the BBC and came to Searchlight, I began to realise that the industry is so much broader than they originally thought of. So I suppose what I'm saying is that, you know, do, do follow your dreams, do pre-producer, director, editor, whatever you're hoping to be in a freelance perspective, but just keep your options open as well. And do try and do some research into other roles within the film and TV industry, because there are so many other roles which may not be frontline, just behind the camera, or you know, certainly in front of the camera, but are really, really valuable and have very clear career plans all the way up to senior management level. So I suppose that's really what I wanted to say. Just keep your option open um, and do the research into other areas of the industry as well. So I'm going to introduce Sarah. Um, Sarah Put runs Sarah Put Associates and she um, provides represented and management of freelance staff within film and TV, really. And you also started off a sort of training and assistance course, didn't yeah. you, to support some of the more junior people coming through the industry as well. So I'm going to come back at the end to take some questions, but I'll leave it to Sarah now. Okay, hello. <laughs> oh. Um, so, before we begin, I just wanted to kind of get a straw poll to kind of see what stage a lot of you are at. How many sort of directors have we got in the room? Directors, excellent. Producers, production people, technicians? Oh, there's a lot of other. Writers? Ah, right, okay. 
Excellent. And are most of you considering at this stage or are already involved in a freelance career? Hands up, freelancers. Okay, good. That is the right answer. One of the things that I've certainly seen in my career as an agent for the last 25 plus years is the difficulties and challenges encountered by freelancers at all stages of their career. And, you know, first off, I want to say big respect. Um, it's not easy being freelance. It's a tough career. It isn't for everybody. I hated it so much I built a whole company up around myself in order that I didn't have to be freelance. But, you know, I think what I have seen over the years is that there are ways of thinking about it and ways of planning and ways of being as a freelancer that can make it a little bit easier. You know, they're not foolproof. There's no magic bullet that, you know, solves everything. But you can enable yourself to sort of maximise your own potential. And that's what we're going to talk a bit about. So it's really, first and foremost, I think, about working out who you are, what your brand is. And absolutely, your work should speak for you. But in order to allow your work to speak for you, you've got to find that voice first and you've got to build up that body of work. So if you think about it, that you are, in essence, your own little company, you know, that company may just be you. It may be John Smith Incorporated. But if you start thinking about, you know, how you are going to separate that little company out from all the other little companies out there and how you are going to build that brand then it enables you to think more clearly about your career in a professional way. So your brand is communicated by loads of things. How you look, your body language, your manners, how well you listen, very much how you act under stress, and the things you choose to share with your colleagues, with your contemporaries, both offline and online. You know, people think of traditional networking as kind of just aiming at the person that they want to talk to in the room and making sure they have that conversation and sell themselves and talk about themselves in order to get their next job and that it is a quick fix. And I think that's what people, a lot of people find really unpleasant about the whole idea of networking. And it isn't any of those things. Networking is about building long-term relationships. And often building relationships, as you guys, you know, you're ahead of the game, you're doing that already, are doing here today, not just with people whose careers are at a more advanced stage than yours, but with your contemporaries. You know, over the years, it has been very much my contemporaries, the people I've grown up in the industry with, who, thank God, some of them are now quite successful, and therefore you can rely on them, and they become very, very useful sort of colleagues as you go along. But they're also your support mechanism in the industry, and that's incredibly important because freelancing feels so incredibly isolating. So it's about building relationships with people at all levels. And therefore, it's about those conversations in which you're as interested in that other person as they are in you. How can you help them as much as what can they do for you? And it's a long-term and continuous process. So in order to kind of start building your brand, do you need a website? How many of you guys have got websites? So quite a few of you. I mean, websites, I think, you know, particularly at an early stage of your career, it's great. They can be a double-edged sword. And if you're going to have them, 
you have to make sure, you know, certain things, which I'm sure you do, that you're updating them because they get dated very, very fast. How you're going to draw an audience to it. And again, what's going to make your website different from any, every other website that has, you know, small bits of work on it, etc. You know, how your website is going to stand out in the crowd. You know, it can be great because it is a showcase for your work and presents your visual ideas and influences. You know, if you can make a website, and I think often a, a blog can be really interesting. One of the young production designers that I took on straight out of film school a few years ago, and she's really risen through the ranks rapidly and is, is very successful. She has always kind of kept an online blog of the things and ideas that really inspire her, the things she's interested in. And as she built up her jobs, it attracted more and more people to look at that blog. And it's really become a sort of definition of who she is creatively as much as who she is professionally. So I think if you can kind of nail that, it can be extremely useful. And also, you know, it can be a way of people contacting you. Um, Again, LinkedIn, a lot of our clients do find LinkedIn incredibly useful. Um, it can give you another forum that can link with everything else online. There are certain things, again, you guys are probably fairly ahead of the game on this, so I'll whistle-stop tour through it. You need to personalise what your job title is on the strapline underneath your name. Please have a clear and professional photo and not one of your bottom or your cat. And believe me, I have seen both. Because it's there for a particular reason. It is there in order that when people then meet you at networking events, they can recognise you. Make sure it has links to your website or any external videos so that it can showcase your work. Groups, again, with LinkedIn, Facebook, etc. Groups have their pros and cons. They can be a very, very useful way of getting information, of seeing what's going on in the industry. You can waste a lot of useful man or woman hours becoming obsessed with kind of the, the chatter that's going on in those groups. And be really strict about who you connect with. It is the quality of people you connect with, not the quantity. It really, really doesn't matter that there are hundreds of them. You want people whose careers you look at and think, oh, that's the kind of progression I'd like to make. People that you have actually got a relationship with, people that you have met in the real world and therefore can sort of, you know, access in that sense as well. So, and ask for recommendations and endorse other people wisely. Twitter is something that an awful lot of our clients find incredibly useful. Lots and lots of jobs are advertised on Twitter. If you're going to start tweeting, make sure you're very focused. If you want it to be a professional platform and focus, you know, tweet about industry-related things. And don't say anything you wouldn't say in person. And follow, like LinkedIn, the people you'd like to work with and for and follow the people that they follow don't give a damn about who follows you. You know, that's not relevant. It's about who you, you're following. And build those contacts. It's a long-term process. Facebook, it is, there's no getting away from it, an incredibly useful tool in getting jobs. There are a lot of jobs that are advertised on Facebook in the right groups that aren't advertised elsewhere. But make sure you understand what you're doing with your privacy settings. Make sure that you know who are your friends, who are your contacts, and you know, have your own, whatever that policy is, clear 
and strict policy about those relationships that you build. Join groups, watch and learn, but be discreet. And don't start kind of shouting your mouth off about things that you sort of think you might know something about, but you possibly don't know as much as you might think you do kind of thing. And I think most importantly, across social media, because quite frankly, a lot of you guys are going to be probably a lot more savvy with regard to social media than I am. But I think it is just make sure you know, in terms of that brand, the message that you are getting out there. Google yourself. Have you all Googled yourself? What comes up first? What is the message that you are sending out? And people you admire, people whose careers you would like to emulate, how do they present themselves? And build up that biography, build up that kind of strap line for your brand that is going to work across all sorts of platforms at different lengths. And I just want to get Cathy to interject here because when we were sort of talking about this session, she was telling me a really interesting story about social media and a, a bit of a cautionary tale. Here that um, we placed somebody at a company that I shall remain nameless, but they then went on Facebook um, and said, oh, I'm so excited about starting at this new job on Monday, and I'm going to be doing X, Y, and Z. Unfortunately, the company then Googled her, found her, felt that she was overplaying the job somewhat, said she was lying, and withdrew the offer. So more and more companies are now um, looking on social media to find out what that says about somebody. So just be really, really aware of it. About something, it's ridiculous, something like 75 80% of companies are now Googling the people before they employ them. It's a little bit scary. Yeah, I mean, certainly if anybody approaches us for representation or if we have a job on offer within the office, that is exactly the first thing that we will do. We will look them up on social media and see what their online presence is saying about them. So, you're also going to need, and I'm sure you all have very beautiful CVs. And CVs are a troublesome little thing, really. It's this sort of one or two pages you're sending off into the world to represent you in paper form. And that can be pretty challenging. Um, and again, I think there are some very kind of basic do's and don'ts that might help. So at all stages of careers, I would suggest it's never going to be one size fits all with your CV. You're going to have to have a variety of CVs to fit a variety of jobs. It's amazing the number of people that you know, we see, certainly when, when we're um, interviewing for our trainee scheme, people don't put what they do or what they are wishing to do at the top of their CV. And it feels like this very sort of generic cut and pasted item. So you have to have, you know, basic template that you can keep in a folder, but then you can move it around. So with some of our, you know, high-end heads of department, if it's a feature film we're going for, we will lead with those credits. If it's a TV drama that we're going for for them, we'll lead with the, the other credits. So it's a question of making it specific for every single job that you're applying for. You know, and that can be quite labour-intensive, but this is sort of part of your work as a freelancer. You'll work as hard as a freelancer when you're not working, if you see what I mean, as when you're actually out there in paid employment. So put the most relevant information at the top. If you don't have any directly relevant experience for the job you're going for as a freelancer, try and find evidence of similar skills. 
and make those skills transferable. And again, I think a lot of the time people are not very inventive with this. There are an awful lot of skills that are transferable. You know, skills from outside the industry as well. I know an awful lot of line producers on dramas who, if they are looking for production secretaries, production runners, they will really, really be enthusiastic if they see experience of working in a bar, working in a retail environment. Because those are experiences and work experiences that would suggest that somebody can deal with people in slightly stressful situations, can deal with the public, can deal with sort of a great deal of information coming at them at once. Those are all directly relatable to a busy production office. So just because it's experience outside the industry, don't necessarily dismiss it. And be proud of your title, whatever that title is that you are sticking on the top of that CV. If you are going for a job at an assistant level, don't tell somebody you're a director of photography, a costume designer, a producer, a director. Because that's going to make you think that you're competing with them. Now, in your head, down the line, of course, you may well be competing with them. But there's no good rubbing their faces in it. So make sure that you are putting the title that is relevant to the job you're going for. And the main thing you also want to be doing once you start building up those credits within the industry is putting the people that you've worked with. Putting names, because those personal relationships are your career currency. That's what people do. It's lovely to have referees at the end of your CV, but trust me, in any freelance environment, what will happen in the production office is they will scan down the CV, they will look at the last two or three jobs, they will see the head of department, director, producer, line producer, whomsoever you mention, and if they know them, they will pick up the phone to them and say, oh, I've just had this CV, you worked with this person, what did you think of them? They won't politely wait for the references at the end. So if there are people that you work with as your career develops that you perhaps don't have the best of relationships with, and really it happens to most people because you'll work with an awful lot of people as freelancers, don't put their names on your CV. Don't put that job necessarily on your CV because otherwise it'll be that you know, nightmare scenario where that will be the first person that the new potential employer picks up the phone to. So, people like to work with people who've worked with people they know. It's what this industry works on. This industry works, you know, a lot of the time on, on the security blanket principle. Once you've built up some credits, they know you can do the job. They know you're talented. But it's those soft skills. It's that, is this somebody I want to work with? If my mate enjoyed working with them, if my colleague who's a line producer enjoyed working with them, then probably I'm going to enjoy working with them. Let's get them in for an interview. And as I said, they will call the people you've worked with rather than necessarily your listed referees. So what else does a CV do? It enables potential employers to identify, verify and contact you. I put all of those underlined because it is the things that people forget off their CVs. Like they forget to put their title. And the other reason for a title is, you know, the myth of the paperless office is just that in production terms. It is a myth. Production offices, big piles of paper, CVs printed off. Make sure your CVs are always in PDF. They're printed off. They're put there for the producer or the head of department to look at. 
If it doesn't say what you do, if it doesn't have your mobile phone number, if it doesn't have your email, ways of contacting you easily and effectively, it will get lost and it will wander off into another pile and probably end up in a shredder somewhere. And that really, really does happen very easily. So make sure you're giving this poor little CV every chance to be successful on your behalf that you can. So job title, email address, mobile phone number, website if you've got one. People often put their addresses. So they'll put they live in northwest London or southeast London or whatever that address may be. I'm kind of, I think... Information works on a is-it-useful basis, particularly on a CV that you're trying to keep short and brief and to the point. If you say you live in south-east London and you're applying for a job at Elstree Studios, somebody else may decide that actually that's going to be a bit of a bugger of a journey for you. So actually you'll go to the bottom of a pile. Your credits might be great, but they'll think, well, you know, it's a long journey, so let's interview the people that live nearer. If you don't put where you live, they are not going to make that judgment about you. So only put your address, I would suggest, if it is relevant, if it is an advantage, i.e. if you are going for a job in Manchester and you happen to have an auntie who lives in Manchester, so you have a Manchester address or a Welsh address or whatever it is. So only use an address, a physical address, where it's useful. If you don't put any contact details, they won't get in contact. So, the career CV is your career summary. It's not a case for the defence. It's not your life story. It's not one size fits all. The average time that somebody will spend looking at a CV is 30 seconds. So, you want the big hitter information in that sort of first third, first half of the one page, and it shouldn't ever be more than two pages, because that's the bit that's either going to capture them or they're going to move on from. So make sure that you construct your CV well, that it has relevant credits, that it has the key people you've worked with. Other skills you know, are incredibly key. Languages, visas, driving licences. Make sure that it looks as easy to read as possible, that the information is there, but the information is easy to access. If you're reading lots and lots of different CVs in a day, you will gravitate to the ones that the information leaps off the page from. So try and make it a pleasant read in terms of you know, the way it's set out. And don't make it... This is an actual CV that somebody sent to us. I mean, it just does your head in. It's like what, what, what they've changed things into graphs. and It's just too befuddling and complicated. Your reaction is, I just don't want to have to go through the pain barrier to find out what the information is that's here because it's just too off-putting. Portrait versus landscape. I don't know how many people in the camera department there are in the room. I have come to the conclusion over many years that the camera department just see the world in four by three. And they always present their CVs in landscape, um, which is fine. Uh, I prefer portrait just because what I, I, I was saying about the, the pile of CVs in the production office, and it's just easier for yours to be found if it's in portrait. But, you know, camera department, okay, landscape. Avoid cluttering it up. Be honest. You know, as Cathy was saying about, you know, the experience on Facebook, likewise, in a CV, do not over-egg it. 
had a young editor apply to us for representation who put down that he'd edited a block on a series. I knew he hadn't edited that block on that series because one of my editors had done it. Actually, he'd done a week on it, but by over-egging it, he kind of never got through the door because it was like, you're not a particularly honest person. If you've just done dailies on, on a show, say you've done dailies. Um, remove pictures. I think they're a complete waste of space on a CV. You know, unless you're applying for a job as a supermodel, why do we need your picture there? You know, yes, I get it on online you know, um, profiles, etc. But in a physical CV, I just don't think it's necessary. And clapperboards and microphones and all those other things that people put on CVs, it just takes up place, space even. Um, and it's not going to make you seem any more attractive as a potential candidate for that job than somebody who hasn't got the clapperboard or the microphone. So, be brief, two pages at most. Make the use of white space so that it's a pleasant reading experience. Please use a readable typeface. And bear in mind that an awful lot of the people reading your CVs are more my age than most of your ages. And our eyes are not as good as they once were. And if, in order to get all that amazing information about every short film you've ever done onto your two pages, you are using a sort of size six font, I just feel really, really middle-aged and pissed off by the time <laughs> I've got halfway down. So please, nothing less than 10 or 12-point fonts. Don't cut and paste carelessly. Don't use generic... We're going to talk a little bit about mission statements in a moment. Please, please, I see, as I'm sure Kathy does, so, so many. I work well in a team. I'm, oh, God, I've just gone for, I am self-motivated. I'm enthusiastic. No shit, Sherlock. Everybody is in this business. You know, really, there is so much passion in this business, it's kind of overflowing with passion. So if you're going to say stuff like that, back it up with some facts. Don't use too many typefaces and colours, and as we say, don't use a tiny typeface. So, how many of you have got that little, little paragraph at the top of your CV? Yeah? They're quite hard to do, aren't they? Yeah. But they don't sound generic, and I'm really enthusiastic, and I'm passionate about working in film. Yeah, they, they're not easy. I'm not standing here saying, oh, so easy to do. They're not. But if you're going to have one, try again and make it say something unique, something personal to you. It's that show, don't tell. If you're going to tell me you're really good at working in a team, explain to me how. Give me an example. You know, make it a little bit like the trailer for a movie. It can highlight the best bit of your CV. If you can nail it, it's a really, really useful little paragraph to have because, as we said, it's the bit that's going to hit people between the eyes when they first look at your CV. And it's also a kind of little paragraph you can use on social media, you can use across your LinkedIn profile, on Twitter, etc. So don't dismiss the idea of it, but just kind of keep working it and reworking it. So make it a concise overview of who you are and, most importantly, what you have to offer. One of the greatest mistakes that I would say I see in those statements is that they're written with you in mind. That what I'm told is, 
I am a passionate, keen, enthusiastic member of the production office. I would like now to expand my work in period drama. I want to develop my career as a production coordinator or whatever it is. I don't care, actually, because what I want to know is what you are going to bring to my production, what you're going to do for me. So if you can angle your experience to the employer end, then you're going to be well ahead of the game. So it's about what you're going to give, not what you're going to get. It needs to be dynamic, rather like your CV, and probably tweaked, edited to fit each particular job platform. They are like Marmite. Some employers love them, some employers hate them. Um, but you've got to feel confident. What we do with a lot of our trainees is, as they get to know each other, we get them to write each other's. Because actually, it's ironic, people can be much more specific and much more upbeat sometimes about somebody else. So maybe talk to friends, talk to colleagues, get them to write a short summation of how they perceive you professionally and what they see your qualities as being. But if you're there just struggling with it, send out nothing as a mission statement rather than sending out something you feel uncomfortable with. So, how am I doing for time? Okay, um, some basics of networking. Again, a lot of this is obvious, but I think it probably is worth mentioning. If you get somebody's card at a networking event and meet them there, and you'd like to build a relationship, take the initiative to email, to contact, just to say how nice it was to meet them, maybe to reference an article that you might have been discussing, a book somebody might have mentioned. Find a reason, potentially, to be in contact and start building that relationship. And make sure that every email you send out in a networking sense is a personal one, that they're not generic, you know, if you met 20 people over the course of a weekend or something, that you're sending, it's more work, but if you send out specific and personal emails, you will get a better response. And I think the biggest thing to understand is just because you don't get a response doesn't mean that your email, your sending of your beautifully laid out and presented CV and your mission statement is not being kept. All of the producers and line producers I know and represent have folders and they keep people's CVs. And when they are next crewing up, they will look through that. So again, obvious things, make sure you put when you're sending that CV, your name and the fact it's a CV in the title line. Because if you just put something like met you recently or further to our meeting, when people are searching for it, if it doesn't get into the right folder, it's going to be really hard for them to find. But if you put Sarah Putt, costume assistant, CV, then it's a lot easier for the person receiving it to file in the right place and be able to find in the future. So think again. Keep thinking about it from the other person's point of view. Always, always, always write to people who have taken the time to meet you. You know, people spend an awful lot of time, I'm sure none of you are guilty of this, chasing the people they want to meet and eventually managing it and having that coffee with them and bleeding them dry for information, which is absolutely what you should be doing. And it's like, right, on to the next one now. And people remember that. 
If you've met somebody for a coffee and they've taken the time out of their busy schedules to meet with you, say thank you. And if you can, be specific about what you felt was useful. We're all frail creatures with little shaky egos, however far down the line we've got. And it's like when you ask people for advice rather than asking them for a job, it takes the pressure off them. They're going to feel much, much more comfortable about meeting up with you because everybody likes to feel that they have advice that might be useful to that next generation. And keep in contact. As I say, just because you're not getting a response back from that producer, director, head of department, commissioning editor, whomsoever it is, doesn't mean your CV and the information you're sending out isn't being noted. It very possibly is. So make sure that you email when you have updates, things you've done or, you know, a job that you've been doing where you've learned a new skill or you've worked on a period drama or whatever it may be. Keep in contact with people. Not every week, not every month. When we sort of did a straw poll of our heads of department and said, how regularly would work for you? Most of them said around three months. So three or four emails a year. And sometimes it may take 18 months before suddenly that head of department will go, do you know what, I've got a job, I'd really like to meet up and have a coffee and discuss it. So just keep that drip, drip effect going and update them, as I say, on your experience or help them or suggest information to them that, you'll, that they might find useful. Keep abreast of what people, you know, you'd like to work with, what they're doing in the industry what events they're attending, if they're giving talks, if they've just received a nomination or an award, that's always a reason to get in contact with them. Use all of those things. It's nice and it also can be effective. So remember, offline and online, there are lots of ways in which you can keep in contact. So keep on, be persistent with sending out emails and CVs to the industry. Sometimes it is just about the timing. And reach out to as many people as you can. Be as specific in terms of running your little company about your database of who you're in contact with, when you're in contact with them, when you were last in contact with them, what you said. Keep spreadsheets on those things. It really, really can be effective. And I would say to clients, for every one person you go and see, particularly towards the start of your career, Try and get that one person to recommend two more people. Just two, not dozens. So that you are basically doubling your network with every contact you make. And it'll start getting pretty big pretty quickly if you can do that effectively. And, you know, let people know when you're available. And be professional, be courteous. You know, I would always suggest unless it is something very specific and you've been asked to call in the evening, don't call people in the evenings. You know, I know we're all pretty 24 hours accessible, but if it's about networking, really not in the evenings for a chat, during daytime working hours. So all of this has been terribly successful and you have now got an interview for that dream job, long-term, short-term, freelance, employed. <sighs> Most of the success of any interview, freelance or otherwise, is in the preparation. It's in the work you do before you go in. And yet, it's the bit that people don't really 
seem to take seriously. The number of people who come in to our company to be interviewed and you say, so, what do you know about Sarah Putt Associates? And they'll go, um, I think you're like an agent. Do you, do you work with actors? And we're the first thing, if you Google Sarah Putt, that comes up. It's not exactly rocket science. So do your prep. Watch shows that might be a good reference point. Go on the company website, phone all your mates, this amazing network you've built, and say, I've got an interview with Tiger Aspect. What do you know about them? You find out as much as you can also about the personality of the person who's going to interview you. It's one of the things as an agent I do with my clients. You know, people at that side of the fence differ wildly in terms of how they will approach interviews. Any briefing you can get, any intel you get is going to be useful and is going to help you. Um, make sure, you know, the job has got more difficult in terms of watching shows because there are so many platforms and there are so many possibly relevant shows. But just do, you know, hone it down to your own devices, but make sure you've done your references as much in depth as you can. For a lot of you, having some kind of portfolio might be, it's a good physical prop. I know a lot of people have, have you know, their work online. But if you are going to discuss a specific show and maybe you've been given the script to read or you've been given a brief, it's useful to take some reference material. It can just be a really good starting point for a conversation and can make you feel more confident as well. Because I think the, the real oddity about this industry in its freelance form is that most of the people who are interviewing you have never been taught to interview you. They've got no idea what they're doing. They're waiting for the big arrow to come down and go, yes, this is the chosen one. You'll probably be asked to go and meet a producer at you know, 5.30 at Paddington Station in the Costa Coffee when they're getting the 20 to 6 train and it's a miserable rainy Friday evening. So you, as that freelancer, are going to somehow, without being aggressive, have to take control of that interview, potentially. Because there isn't going to be a structure to it. So you need to know what you want to get across, how you want that interview to run, and what you want to, been want to have been able to tell them by the end. So, and also, yes, check if you've got any mutual contacts. What we were saying earlier about the security blanket view of employing, it just, if you know people, they know, and can mention those people, it can often be very helpful. Remember on the day, it is a two-way street. It is about you finding out about them as much as them finding out about you. So, you know, go armed with questions as well as information but know that just maybe three things, four at most, but the three things in that interview that you would like to get across about yourself. What do you want them to know about you by the end of it? What impression of you would you like them to leave with? So, you know, think about that. Don't necessarily be afraid of silences. You don't have to fill every bit of airspace. They ask you a question you want to think about, say, that's a really good question. Let me just have a think on that for a sec. That's fine. Positive reactions. <laughs> Smiley, eye contact. Again, obvious stuff. It really, really, really makes a difference. You know, the other reason people employ is about the soft skills. 
It's about, do I want to work with this person? Do I feel positive energy? When I'm stuck in that tent in Bulgaria for six weeks on location with this person, how am I going to feel about them? And you can control that. You can't control how the other person behaves, but you can control the impression that you are giving to that person. Do not moan about previous jobs. Ever, 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 ever. Even when there's... Do not even when put. It's notorious for having been hellish jobs. But do not, even when pushed, go into moany scenario. It's never attractive. Unless you're a stand-up comedian, you won't get away with the humour of it. It'll just come across as negative. Ask questions, as we've said, and breathe. Yeah. When we're nervous, a lot of us, including me, talk much more quickly and kind of forget to breathe and go a bit blue in the face in the end. So just take a bit of time out to breathe slowly and just think things through. Heads of department look for good first impressions. They look for somebody they don't mind being metaphorically stuck in the submarine with, for good enthusiastic energy, for a positive can-do attitude. And even if you don't get the job, certainly after the interview, send an email saying thank you and how much you enjoyed being interviewed and meeting them. And even if you don't get the job, be gracious. Thank them for the time. Say good luck with the project. Because again, so often, it's not that they've rejected you. Of course it's going to feel like it. It's going to feel like shit for a couple of days, and you're allowed to feel shit about it. And then you have to box it up and put it in a corner and move on. If you haven't got the capacity to do that, and I was really bad at that, then you shouldn't be being freelance. But it's not that they're rejecting you. They're not going, you can't do the job. On this occasion, they're just going, that other person had a skill set that on that occasion was just slightly more appropriate to the job than your skill set. That doesn't mean the next job and the job after that, they wouldn't absolutely employ you. So when people say to you, I'd really like to work with you in the future, even if it hasn't worked on this occasion, do you know what? They do most of the time mean it. They're not just trying to soft soap you. So take that one on face value. But it all worked, and you got the job. And I think then, and this is the real, one of the real keys to being freelance, is you need to take some control in your decision-making. I think one of the dangers, and I've seen it with clients a lot over the years, is people take a job because they're offered it. You should know why you are taking a job. What is informing your decision to take or turn down a job? Because your job will be defined as much by the careers you don't, the, career, the jobs you don't do, as the jobs that you do do, more and more as you rise up that ladder. So, really, it's the quid pro quo. You need to know what you're going to be giving, your skill, your hard work, your hours, your labour, and what are you gaining? Are you gaining money? Is it well paid? Will it pay next month's rent, even if it's not perhaps your dream job? Is it prestige? Is it with some really good people, some new contacts? Is it actually with a bunch of people you just really want to work with? And it's the summer, and it's a short film, but it's a week on location, it'll be fun. All of those are valid reasons for taking jobs. And if there are no reasons for you to take it, don't take it because I've seen so many people get caught in cul-de-sacs of the industry 
working at an early stage of their career as a head of department, but on short films, on no-budget projects, and they then find it very hard to migrate back into the mainstream on those bigger, more prestigious jobs. And that's, you know, it's not an easy thing to do, but don't get caught in cul-de-sacs, unless a cul-de-sac is where you wish to be. Should you do freebies? If you're going to do it, when you do it once for one person, try and do it as rarely as possible, and make sure you know why you're doing it. Because don't do it for some future promise of, oh, when I get the big job, when I get the feature film, there's no money on this short film, but when I get the feature film, you guys, you're my team, you're my A-team, you're coming with me. Ha! And then the financiers get involved and say, no, you are now to use that BSC cameraman and that BAFTA-nominated costume designer. So you've got to know in the present tense why you're doing that job. And when it comes to doing deals, you know, can do whole sessions on negotiating. It's a really hard thing as a freelancer. But if you go into doing deals on, with a positive attitude and you're an assertive negotiator, not a defensive, oh, God, I'm crap at this negotiating thing, I'm just going to get screwed over and that's an end of it, or the aggressive, well, I'm just going to get what I want and, you know, I'm just going to really lay down the law. But assertive, and assertive to me means you're probably going to have to make some compromises, and in return, the person at the other side is going to make some compromises. Then, you know, it will be a better negotiation. You can't change the other person's behaviour, but you can change yours. So by being assertive, by being positive, by being pleasant about negotiating, you may get a little bit more of what you're after. Don't catastrophize. That's being you know, very defensive. Often those who name their price first lose. You know, this happened to me recently. It was a, a, a film that one of my young DOPs was doing. It was quite a step up for him. And I knew the price point that, you know, was going to be our bottom line. But I asked what they were intending to pay. And it was £1,000 more a week than I would probably have asked for for him. So I'd have looked pretty bloody stupid if I'd have said my price first. So if you can garner some information from them, ask around, talk to your mates, talk to industry colleagues, use industry comparisons, rate cards, etc., what your mates earn. And again, the power of silence in negotiating. negotiating. It's always that thing that because we're terribly polite, we like to fill air. So if somebody says, so um, what I've got is... £500 a week, and you go, well, actually, I was hoping for a little more than that. And it gets really embarrassing staying quiet. So what you want to do is you want to go, but, you know, if that's all you've got, that's fine, I'll take it. Don't. Don't. Stay silent. And nine times out of ten, they will then come back with, okay, I can go up to 600 so remember, silence is a very powerful negotiating tool. Things go wrong on jobs. No, things go wrong for freelancers. It's hard, it's tough, you've got to work with a lot of different people, you're not going to get on with all of those people. But, you know, I think to bear in mind, as we are horribly running out of time here, um, when things go wrong, and they will, you're not the only person for whom things go wrong. It does happen to everybody. Sometimes it's just a personality clash. Sometimes it's people working in a very stressful environment and getting overtired and behaving somewhat irrationally. 
But make sure you know on any job who you can approach, who you, what, where your safe space is, who you can talk to. Hopefully, that's going to be your head of department. It isn't always. It might be somebody in another department. It might be somebody in the production office. On a lot of bigger shows, there will be structures for how they deal with difficult situations. But just ask those questions at the beginning. I think most of the time in this industry, it's about walking away initially. It's about, okay, there was a blow. Somebody spoke really unpleasantly. That felt absolutely horrible and like the end of my world. I'm not going to try and deal with it in this moment. I'm going to walk away from it. And everybody's going to calm down and actually let's leave it overnight. And you will often find that then the next morning, whomsoever it was that you were in that situation with has also slept on it and goes, do you know what, that was completely uncalled for. I'm really sorry, let's just move on. And that will happen if you give a situation time to diffuse. If it doesn't, and you are being treated badly, and I say this, this is the bit when I do this talk that I get really, really serious. This is a wonderful, wonderful industry. And I hope you all have fantastic careers in it. Occasionally, there is bad behavior. And that bad behavior is not always on the small shoots. It can sometimes be on the very big shoots. It can sometimes be from very, very illustrious people, very occasionally. You've got to call it out. Do not accept being treated badly. It is not acceptable. If it feels unacceptable, do not accept it. End of very serious bit. So, yes, I think most people occasionally leave jobs before the end. They leave jobs before the end because they're so miserably unhappy. Fine, absolutely, get the hell out of there. It is not worth staying. If situations can't be solved, if there's a personality clash that you're just not going to resolve, move on. But... A lot of the time, particularly in a busy industry, it's because people are being offered something better. And they think, oh, I'm now on this TV series and I'm now being offered this big Netflix series rather than a little domestic ITV series. Be very careful about doing that because it does get you a reputation. I think we all get one get-out-of-jail-free card to move from a small job to a bigger job. But if you're going to do it, I think the most important thing is ask, don't tell. Don't sail into your head of department saying, I've just been offered a Netflix series, I'll be leaving next week. Ask, you know, explain the situation, explain why it's a big break, explain why it's important to you. Most heads of department, most producers are pretty reasonable and want your career to be successful and want you to be able to develop as a freelancer. So we'll be pretty well disposed towards you. And make sure on every job you do as a freelancer, you get feedback. Ask for feedback, what you were doing well, what you could do better. Otherwise, you exist in a vacuum and you don't improve. You just keep doing the same thing time and time again. So really try and ask your head of department or those working around and above you what they felt were your strengths, what they felt were your weaknesses. Because sometimes it's very difficult to see what we're good at ourselves and actually what we're not so good at. And then, you know, gradually try to increase your rate as you go along. Set yourself goals. Goal setting, I think, as a freelancer is incredibly important. When you work for a company, there'll be an HR structure. There'll be, you know, somebody who is expressing a duty of care in terms of your employment and wants you to progress. As a freelancer, you're working for lots of different people. So you have to be your own goal setter. 
And that way, you will have some control and you will be able to make some choices. And I think you know, that's the most important thing. Don't just get blown by the winds of chance. Try and know what it is you're aiming towards, the routes you're going to take to get there, and what the steps on that journey are going to be. And then you can manage those choices. Good luck. Have we got time for five minutes? Happy. Have you got any questions for either of us? Lady down here. Thanks. Thanks for that. That was really helpful. Um, I just wanted to ask about when you're representing somebody, protecting ideas that we all have that often you know, can, can quite easily get taken once mm. you start pitching them out. If you've got any advice at all about that. It is a difficult one. I think the more specific your idea is, the more attached to particular characters or events, the less hard it is to steal it. Certainly lodging that with the Writers Guild, with an agent, with a lawyer, is a useful process to go to. As an agent, what we would do is, is kind of, you know, we work with a lawyer and we would always draw up agreements, you know, even at a reading stage. But it's about working with people you trust. For most people, honestly, it is not in their interest mercilessly to try and steal your ideas, it, you know, be that factual or, or fiction. You know, they don't want to do that. The truth is that quite often, if one person is sitting in a production office going, I think kind of we should be looking at reworking the Western this year, there's probably some other smart researchers and writers sitting in other production offices having similar ideas. So the more specific you can make the idea, the more protected it is. Um, Sarah, could you tell us more about your trainee scheme, please? Um, it's a soft skills trainee scheme. It's a lot of this in a lot more detail. Uh, the applications have just closed for this year. We run it every year. We take on 25 uh, freelancers across production, sound, camera, editing, visual effects, costume... And we do sort of a seven-month programme with them, which involves masterclasses, teaming you up with our heads of department, and also for that period, you're actually represented by us. So, you know, because the industry's busy, a lot of our trainees are, are kind of getting work through it as well. But the intention of it is to kind of really help you hone your skills as a freelancer. Uh, cheers. Thanks for the talk. Um, I was wondering, you mentioned the being trapped in cul-de-sacs. Yeah. Uh, can you elaborate a bit more on that? Because it feels like if you're not particularly well-connected, you probably would have to sort of stick to uh, smaller jobs, at least at the beginning. How do you tell whether or not you're going to be trapped in a, a cul-de-sac? <laughs> I think, yes, of course, at the beginning, you're absolutely doing short films, you're doing anything you can do to get out there, hone your skills, just get some work. But I think it's that having goals. So, okay, what's your goal for the next 90 days? Is that to start getting... What, what do you do? What area do you work in? A production assistant. Okay, so do you therefore want to get yourself onto a TV series? You know, do you... So, okay, so then look at other people's careers just a little bit ahead of you. How did they go about doing that? What are the routes that they were taking? I agree totally. I think it is about mapping your career, and I think it's even more important as a freelancer. Um, because in permanent roles, you tend to have a natural jump to go to for your next role. With a freelancer, it's going back to the sort of low-paid, no-paid roles. 
use that definitely as a way to get something on your CV, but don't get trapped there. You know, just map it out and see where your next career point's going to be and how long it's going to take there. Because it is, I guess it's quite easy, certainly more at the junior end, to get trapped because you're loving the work you're doing, but it's about having that career strategy, I think. Mm. And the, just one other thing, um, which I see quite a lot, is that people get trapped in, a, in an area that they don't want to be in. So, for example, say if you actually really want to be a cameraman, but you've been trained in both sound and camera, and you keep taking sound jobs because that's what you keep being offered, that's not going to help you get to be where you want to be in, in terms of being a DOP, because you start getting recognised, and it's amazing how senior people in the industry, they segregate them very quickly. So they go, oh, no, well, that, clear, that person's clearly a sound person. Well, actually, no, they've, had, they've got 18 months' experience, that's all. They can clearly move somewhere else. But just be aware of that, about where you want to go, so don't get trapped in an area that you don't actually want to end up in. It's good at the beginning, but make sure you move out of it quite quickly. Um, you mentioned kind of um, using names as currency. If you've kind of worked for some quite, up, quite high up people in the industry, how much is kind of too much of mentioning them and how do you kind of shake that off as you get going? So you're wanting to shake off those kind illustrious of high up Not names. just using them as just kind of... as a. I feel like sometimes people just meet you because you have worked for that person and they tend to kind of ask you questions about that about person. About that person. And you're like, oh, you're having a meeting with me. You, you know? I think there's probably a lot of other people who would go, that's fantastic, you're getting in the room. Then it's about the sort of, if, you've, if that's happened to you on several occasions, okay, what happened in that interview that made it go down that route and how can you without, you know, like we were saying, you can't alter the other person's behaviour but you can alter yours. Is there something different once you're through the door and that person's name has got you through the door? Great. End of. How are you now going to move the conversation on to actually what you have to offer so you're bringing it back to you? So whilst not refusing to answer any questions about that person, you can keep that very short, hone your responses to that, and then add in something about your, yourself as well. So you're sort of moving the conversation onwards. Okay, thank you very much. Have enjoy the rest of your afternoon. Bye -bye.